This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Smith, and I am your host and the pastor of education at Rio Vista Community Church. And joining me today is Will Bushman, our student ministries director. Welcome, Will. I'm here. So we are coming into our fourth week looking at the epistle of 1 John. And if uh, you've followed us through the previous weeks, you know that there have been some real like gut check questions where John is calling us, and this is the Apostle John, is calling us to reckon with whether or not the marks of a true Christian are evident in our life. Is faith real in our life? Is the Spirit moving with power in our life? And so just some of them, some of those kind of questions that he's calling us to wrestle with are, do we believe that Christ is God? Because he comes and says in uh, this book, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he's in God. Uh, you have to obey the commandments. It says whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. You need to reject the world, right? Uh, you don't love the world or the things in the world, because if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Uh, you're repentant from sin. You're, you're unwilling to walk in darkness. And if you keep practicing sin, then God's seed does not abide in you. Uh, you haven't been born of God. You have to love the brothers. You have to, and we're going to hear today, you have to reject false teachings. Um, and so John is coming to us, and he's saying, hey, like if, if you are legitimately a Christian, these are the things you should expect in your life. But none of that is legalism, because what he's saying is this is how a Christian behaves when they come to recognize what Christ has done for them. You love because you've been loved. And so he's saying, is this taking hold of your life? Do you really, really experience the love of Jesus? Because if you do, this should be the fruit that you see in your life. And if you don't, again, what's the answer? You run to Jesus, and you recognize your need of Him, and you let Him work in your heart. And so starting in 1 John, we come, and it says right out of the gates, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so this could go a million different directions right here, Will. Yeah, it could. <laughs> But this is this was like we remember John is writing to a church that from the outset he said okay there was opposition in your church and those people have left they've gone out so now we are claiming them as false prophets mm -hmm. right so this is a tangible thing and obviously in our world you know maybe it's not exactly the same you know A to B but we do have those right mm -hmm. sure so he uses this language like test the spirits and what he means by that like in the in the first century they absolutely believed that wisdom and truth and everything that went on all morality all of that there was a spiritual element in it right because if you're born of god then everything about you has been spiritually remade your mind your heart everything about you has had a spiritual makeover if you're stuck in the world and your father is as he talked about last week your father's the devil, then you are spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses. Everything has a spiritual component. And so what he's saying is, as you're walking in the church, you're going to hear lots and lots of different teachings from lots of people, and you've got to test them. You've got to test the spiritual authenticity of those teachings against what you know from the scriptures and from the character of Jesus, because many people are going to come, and they're going to claim, hey, I've got a word from God. I'm the, tr I'm, I'm the truth teller. And he's saying, you got to test all that against the scriptures and against the character and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as you know him, because lots of people are going to come, and they're going to take the word. 
They're going to take the gospel and they're going to try to put their own unique twist on it to push their agenda. So you've got to test the spirit. Yeah, and he's making clear that they're out there. Like, this mm-hmm. is not something that we just get to opt in if we want to. He's saying, no, for your protection, right? He starts off with beloved. Like, mm-hmm. he's saying, hey, because you're loved, this is a good, like, this command is for your protection. It's for your benefit. It's so you stay abiding in the real Jesus that John is proclaiming to us. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so he goes on in verse 2, and he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so what this is referring to is it's an early heresy that creeped into the church that's called docetism. And what that means is there were early people, remember we talked about in previous episodes, how in the Greek culture, the physical realm was wicked. They didn't like it. You know, it's like when I die, I want to be freed from this body because my body makes me hungry and my body makes me tired. My body makes me hurt. And so to be freed from the body was like seen as a a prison break almost, like you're finally free, you're just a spirit. And so what crept in in the early teachings of people who weren't in Judea, who didn't see Jesus firsthand, because John's writing to broad audiences, they started saying, well, of course God is the ultimate being. He would never impose on himself a body. He would never take upon himself limitations where he could be hurt or anything like that. And so Jesus was re- he was real, but he wasn't physical. He wasn't in the flesh. He came as kind of an apparition or some kind of a ghost or something like that, but he remained a spirit. And so what John is saying, okay, let's take, for instance, here's something you can test by the spirits, right? Those who people who say that Jesus has come in the flesh, that's from God. Yeah. That's according to the Scripture. We saw him, we felt him, we ate with him. We know that's the truth. And those who say that he didn't, they're not from God. Like that's test the spirit is kind of the idea. Measure the truth against what you've been taught, what you've been told. And back then, what you've seen with your own eyes, is this of Jesus? Yeah, I think John is always from this book is very, not black and white, but he's very, hey, there's two options here. Mm -hmm. Like, like. You're son of God or you're son of the devil. Yeah. Right? And this is like, okay, test the spirits and see, okay, Jesus either in the flesh and you're of God or that spirit is evil and should be rejected completely. Mm -hmm. There's no like, oh, well, it's kind of right and it's kind of wrong and I kind of want to be and I kind of don't. No, he's like, yes or no. Like, test them and it's either going to come down and say, no, this is of God or this is of Satan. I think it would be really entertaining if like the apostle John came and talked to people modern day. Yeah. he. (laughs) Can you imagine? No safe spaces here. Oh, my goodness. Like, he would just lay it down, and people, I think their heads would, like, melt or something. Or even the Apostle Paul. Like, these people, they were not soft with the truth, but they weren't doing it to be crushing. Like, you don't get the sense that John here is being like, you, you know, you dirtballs. Like, he's coming and saying, no, 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 I love you enough that I want you to experience the truth. I want you to test these things so that you're not taken captive to things that are going to that are going to minimize or diminish the power of the gospel in your life. And you see all kinds of things like that that creep up in the church, but there's many, many false teachings. And I won't say that, you know, you're, you're, you forfeit salvation if you believe these. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying if you believe some of these false teachings that, you know, you're not saved, but like the prosperity gospel is one that comes immediately to my mind. And what it, what it will do is it will say, well, God loves you right? Well, that's true. God wants to bless you. Well, that's true. God wants, you know, to pour prosperity on you. That's true. But then the way that they define it is, if you give your life to Jesus and you believe by faith, then God is obligated Mm -hmm. to give you great wealth, and he's obligated to give you great health. And if you don't have those things, it's evident that you're not believing strongly enough. And that you test the Spirit. Is that true? Is that true? Like, And you can look objectively at the Scriptures, you can look objectively at people you know, and you can say, absolutely, that's not true. If faith equated to material prosperity, then the disciples had horrible faith, (laughs) you know? They all, besides one, went to a martyr's death. They... They all suffered through poverty. They all suffered rejection. They didn't have God's, you know, 
worldly favor all over them to yeah. where everything they touched turned to gold and they lived in palaces and, and have private jets. Like they, the, the prosperity gospel would look absolutely appalling to the early church. And yet today, so many evangelical churches grab hold of this and they believe it. And so when you fall out of favor or when you lose your job or when you get cancer, what does that make you think? God must be displeased. My yeah. faith must be fake. And nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, and all that stuff is slippery because, like you said, there is an element of truth in it, but it's twisted. It's distorted in such a way that it's slippery. Like, mm -hmm. that's why it's insidious because if, if you hear it from the right person at the right time, maybe in the right context, you're like, oh. Yeah. Man, God does really want that for him. Yeah, but think that's on the yeah. lips of Satan himself when mm -hmm. he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread or, or throw yourself off the temple. God will catch you. What is he saying? He's saying God would never allow you to suffer. God would never allow you to die. And if God would allow you to suffer and die, then he doesn't love you or consider you his son. I mean, this is this is what Satan himself uses that tool book, that, that, that toolbox, to try to, to make Jesus stumble. So he's doing it to us. And what does he use? He uses the prosperity gospel. If mm. God loved you, you should prosper without any pain, without any hurt. And then you find this insidious thing in our churches. And this is what John is saying. you got to test the spirits. Like, look at what the gospel teaches. Does that jive? Absolutely not. <laughs> Another one that is insidious in our churches, and this one might get me in trouble, is, is something called intersectionality. You know what that is? Uh, I think you should define it. <laughs> you want me to define it? Yeah, no, yeah. I want you. you, no, you no, do. no, no, no. <laughs> so intersectionality, this is something that's like wildly popular. It is running rampant through our, our college campuses, and it basically says this, that your identity can be defined in a million different pieces, right? You, you got your race, you got your sex, you've got your gender identity, you've got your sexual orientation, you've got your wealth, you've got all sorts of things, your educational background, your, your religion. And with every one of those dissected little aspects of who you are, you're given kind of a quality as to whether or not you fall on the victim end of the spectrum or the villain end of the spectrum. And what that does is it comes and says, okay, if you're white, then you're privileged, and therefore you're the oppressor category. If you're male, you're the oppressor category. If you're Christian, you're the oppressor category. If you're, go down the line, if you're cisgender, if you're straight, you're the oppressor category. And so what it does is it builds division, and it takes oftentimes things that are innate in you, God-given qualities, and it makes them as things that should be shamed or that you should apologize for. And you look at that and you say, that sounds so close to the gospel because what's at the heart of it? Like if, if you took a noble person who believed that, because there's Christians running around who love this stuff, and in their mind, they're not doing it because they want to hate or categorize people. They're doing it because they're saying, oh my gosh, there's people who are oppressed who tend to be less fortunate, and therefore we need to take from those that are privileged and reduce their power structure to elevate others. And what that does is it creates resentment and tension, and it creates dividing walls between us. We've been trying it for the last, what, five, ten years now? How's it going for us? Like, it builds resentment. It builds division where the gospel comes along, and it doesn't do that. The, the early church, if you were to look at the early church, it was comprised overwhelmingly, if you looked at the demographics, of women way more than men. They actually had a problem with unmarried women in the early church because there weren't enough Christian men for them to marry. There were way too many women, slaves. There were poor. You know, If you looked at the demographics, it was all the people who were down and out, right? Gentiles, yeah. right? That, that wasn't supposed to happen. But why did that happen? That didn't happen because Jesus said, you know what, I need to cobble together an intersectionalized group of victims and tell them that the oppressors have put them down and cobbled them together to form a movement. No. What did Jesus do? He came along and said, you know what, now that your identity is in me, there's no more Jew or Gentile. He abolished that as an identity. There's no more male or female. He abolishes that as an identity where you find your 
your chief identity. There's no more slave or free. He abolishes that, right? And what does he say? There's one identity that's now I want you to hold as your chief thing, and it's it's Christ, and there's a common humanity, and you all need me, and you all suffer, and you all are in desperate need of salvation. So find your commonality in me. I am your identity, and all these little sub-identities, get them out of here. They just cause division. And the church now rallies around this stuff and pushes it, and it's really corrosive to the type of community that Jesus wants to form. And you got to be careful, because every single Christian has an obligation to the downtrodden, to the outcast, to the one that's left out, to the one that's marginalized. So that's there. You have the obligation to love them. And yet, what, what makes Christianity so appealing in the ancient world is not that all of these divisions were highlighted. It's that the divisions were abolished. And now you have one shared common identity in Christ. That's what the church should be trumpeting. That's effective. That works. This intersectionality nonsense does not. We've proven it. Yeah, and again, intersectionality, if you were told by the right person at the right time in the right context in Mm -hmm. the right way, you'd probably be like, oh, okay. But again, if we're testing the spirits, there's a little more thought that goes into everything we believe than just that. Yeah, yeah. We got to go back to it and like, I think that's what John is calling us to. Like, it's so easy just to be like, man, that seems like a lot of work, right? Because mm-hmm. it is. And that seems like, oh, this this belief isn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Or this thing doesn't seem that big. But John's saying, no, like, it's test every spirit. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. every single one. Yeah, and if your belief, if it doesn't cause you to become more like Jesus, it's wrong. Yeah. You know, Jesus is somebody who who lays his life down. Jesus is somebody who gives everything away for the sake of others. Jesus... But he never, like, you know, interestingly, when Jesus is alive, he's part of a marginalized group, meaning that the Romans are oppressing the Jews, so he's part of the Mm -hmm. marginalized group, and yet the Jews oppress the Samaritans, so he's a part of the marginalizing group, right? And yet, when you look at his encounters with both Romans and Samaritans, he loves them. He doesn't say, well, you know, I have grievances, my people— you know, he just, he loves them because he doesn't see race as a barrier. He doesn't see it as a dividing line, and neither should we. You got to test the spirit. Okay, so we're right in the middle of verse 3, and then the next sentence that he says is, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And I want to pause there because there's an important distinction. It's not saying this is the Antichrist. It's saying this is the spirit of the Antichrist. If you want to know the one who stands resolutely against the Christ, the one who stands against the gospel, well, this is the spirit of that one, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and you've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so what John is stressing here is you have the spirit of God who dwells in you, who calls you to conviction, who enlightens you, who drives you in the right path. You've been born of God, made new, made alive again, whereas everyone else who's in the world, all of all the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world, it's all dying. There's, it's not in there. They don't have that zeal for truth and life. They're, they're not born again. And what he's saying is, like, rest in that power. The one who dwells in you is far greater than any wisdom that can be found out there in the world. Yeah, it's very John of him to be like, hey, this is what you should do. You should test every spirit, but I've already given you the power to do that because you are my child. You are a part of my family. The spirit of God is now living in you to be the power that does this. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's a beautiful part that we've seen the tension this whole time in this mm-hmm. letter. Mm-hmm. That it's like, it feels really hard at first. Like, oh, test every spirit. Like, <laughs> you know, do I have the tools? Am I, is it necessary? Da, da, da. But then it's like, no, I, I've given you mm-hmm. all you need. Like mm-hmm. you have the exact spirit that you need in you because Jesus died and you've entered in the family. Yeah. And it, it, it's almost like a homing beacon. You know, the spirit is at work in you and the spirit also inspired the scriptures. And it's like, your heart needs to find harmony with the truth of the scriptures. And when it finds it, there you you have the truth. You know, you can't just say, okay, my heart is just going to determine the truth. I've, <laughs> I've got the spirit in me, and so I'm just going to sit really hard and think about truth, and whatever I come up with, that's it. No, no, no. 
It's a homing beacon that leads you to the scriptures. And when your heart match, like when it finds the truth in the scriptures and it yields to it, there is truth. And that's what he's talking about. You have the spirit in you that can discern that and find the truth in the word. And then he says like something that's pretty just flat. I mean, here's John again, right? He says, you know, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And what is he saying here? Don't expect to find your truth by what the world is trumpeting. They're from the world. They're going to teach worldly things, and the whole world's going to listen to them. So when you look out your window, when you look at your TV, and you see the absolute insanity that's going on in the world, do not forfeit truth to chase after what the world says is wisdom. It's folly. Do not chase it. Yeah, and John's been pretty upfront about what he thinks about the world. Like, hey, don't be surprised when they hate you because yeah. they should hate you because you don't look like their father, the devil. And they, mm-hmm. you know, that's what the life they're seeking after. So when you look like your father, God, you should look entirely different. Mm-hmm. Like, which is like, seems so discouraging at first, but then you look at this and it's so encouraging, I think. Yeah. Like, like, you look at the world and like, oh, I feel crazy. Oh, wait, I should look crazy mm-hmm. because I'm not like this world. I wasn't made for this world. I'm built for a different world. And that should, you know, that's another like... Mm-hmm assurance that I'm walking in the spirit. Mm -hmm. Paul says that the world considers us foolishness, like what we believe is foolishness, and we're fools for Christ. Like, why? Because the world is so deluded. I mean, let's just take the transgender thing. I'm going to throw that one out there. That is so absolutely preposterous to me. And I know that people, the world sincerely believes it with all their heart, even with motives, wanting to care for those that are, you know, seen as lesser than or whatever. And I I get the motives, and I, I appreciate that you want to love people and make sure that nobody feels alienated. But the reality is, that's insanity to say that a man can just all of a sudden say, no, I'm a woman. And no, you're not. And so as a Christian, to have to say that increasingly in our modern world, you look like a fool, you look like a bigot, you look like all of these things, and it's hard to stand on an island. But what is John saying here? The world is going to teach like the world. You need to recognize that it's the world and stand firm in the truth. We're getting dicey in this. We're we're definitely getting canceled. Yeah, we're out, but let's go. (laughs) (laughs) We're knee deep in it. I'm like, transgenderism, that's the first thing that came to your head? (laughs) What what was in your head? I don't know. Probably that because it's the craziest one, but I was like, are we going to say that one? Cool. I'm in. All right, verse six. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, meaning the apostles. So when he says this, he's talking about those that write the scriptures. The, the apostles have the authority to, to bring the, the commands of God. And so he's like, whoever knows God listens to the scriptures, because it's the apostles who are offering the scriptures. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us or the scriptures. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so you want to know what's true and what's not, John is telling you it's found in the Scripture. This gets back to that sola scriptura, Scripture alone. It is the ultimate authority. If you believe anything that's contrary to the Scripture, you have to bow to the Scripture, right? Yeah. That's, that's what Christianity calls you to. Otherwise, you are creating a Stepford God. Yeah. You know, have you ever, you've ever seen the movie or read the book Stepford Wives? Uh, no. Well, what a Stepford wife is... Is this from like the 80s? It's long ago. Long, long, long ago. Well, a Stepford wife, what the premise is, is there's a man who just starts creating these mechanical wives that just do whatever you want them to do. So, honey, I need lemonade. And, oh, yes, dear, I would be so happy to do that. And they just... It's this bizarro world where there's no real human wives, but they're all mechanical, and they're programmed to do absolutely everything that the husband requires of them. And it's a disaster because there's, it's not authentic, right? The same is true in a lot of people in the way that they see God. It's like, oh, it just so happens that when, when I come to my God, he agrees with every opinion I have. Yeah. That's not a real relationship. You've created a God in your own image, and that's nonsense. If you can read the Scripture and there's nothing in there that you find troublesome, <laughs> yeah. Then you don't understand who God is because when I read the scriptures, there's a lot of stuff that's like, man, I wish I, I wished I could have written that because I'd have written it differently, yeah. you know. The whole book of First John, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. yeah. First John is challenging, right? Yeah. It gets in your, you're like, whoa, I'm like, 
Yeah, if you felt nothing this whole time, you're not reading it. <laughs> but that's it. Like, in a real relationship, if you have a real relationship with God who has ultimate authority and he's the one who designed the entire world and he comes to you and says, here's what I want from you. Here's how I've designed it. And you go, wait, but that's not in line with what I feel. Guess what? You're not God. You have to submit to God. And that's the idea here. Like, the scriptures are authoritative, and if you are from God, then you listen to the scriptures even when your own heart or flesh disagrees. Yeah, I think the tricky thing in our world, too, is that we even have to caveat that because you have to listen to the whole of scripture. Right. Right, because now, you know, we live in a world where, you know, oh, I don't, I don't want the Old Testament because I don't believe in a wrathful God or, or a God that would condone violence or, you know, whatever the people were doing back then. Or, you know, I want to read my highlighted Bible because there's a lot in it that I do like. I like the fact that God is love and I want love to win out in the end. But that lets me do whatever I want because, mm-hmm. again, then that just makes me God. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another, you know, like when we come to the scriptures, right? Like you said, it's going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. We can't just be like, ah, not that verse. Yeah. And, I, and, and not taking it out of context because yeah. you'll see, you know, like in this chapter, it's going to say God is love. And you could rip that out of context and be like, <laughs> oh, you know, there's no wrath in God. But do you know the greatest picture of wrath in the entire Bible is not in the Old Testament? Yeah. It's when Jesus comes back, and it describes the judgment as though there's blood up to the bridles of horses, like he comes back as a warrior to put down the rebellion and to save his people out of a wicked world. That's the way it's described and prophesied. So this idea that Jesus is just going, oh, come on, please, everyone, you know, I, before, before, as we wrap this up in the second coming, you know, everybody who wants to come, you know, please, you know, yeah. no, Jesus is coming back as a warrior. Yeah. He's coming back as a warrior. So the character of God that you find in the New and the Old Testament are not different, but people, again, not only just say, you know, we used to call them cafeteria Christians. I'll take some of this, but I don't want that, and I'll take some of this, but I don't want that. No. Like, this is the authority of God. He's given us this book, and if you're in, you got to take all of it. You can't cherry pick and make God in your own image. Yeah, that's even why in personal worship, like when we get the last section and it's yield, it's because we just read all of this stuff. You know, we read all the scripture yeah. from God, and the last portion of that is saying, all right, God, I lay it all down to you. Like, mm-hmm. the things I liked that I read today, the things I didn't like, the challenging things, the hopeful things, all of it, I'm going to submit it now at your feet. Because in the end of my last act of personal worship of the day, no, not your last act, but of that actual personal worship mm-hmm. as a thing, you say, nope, it's it, it's all you. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I yield every portion of my life to what I just read because I know it's from you. Yeah, the whole concept of grace and mercy requires you to recognize that you're out of alignment with God. Like if I said, oh, God loves everything I do, then what's the point of the cross? Like what's the point of mercy? Like you have to recognize that there's an authority that doesn't agree with everything you do, (laughs) you know? Like Jesus had to go to a cross because I'm out of alignment with his authority. Yeah, I send he paid for it. So when I say, well, you know, I don't like that part of the Bible. I'm just going to make it to where God agrees with me and I'm suddenly obedient just because I think so. Like, no, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. And yeah. what John is saying, no, the authority comes from us. And if you're of God, you're going to follow the scriptures, even if it's hard for you to say, wow, I really don't like that because you, I, I don't think anybody reads the entirety of the Bible and goes, I'm good with all of it. You know, like <laughs> there are things that make you go, ooh, that's... I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And yet it requires you to submit because he's God and you're not. Yeah. So he said, by this we know the spirit of truth and... The, what, where did we finish? Yeah, we finished there. Okay. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So then in verse 7... Shift. We get a shift and it's good stuff. So, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so... One of the things at the very beginning of this verse that's important to know, when it says beloved, that's not like a, a simple Greek word that is just means beloved. It means, hey, those of you who are loved, let us love one another. So you get again, John is giving you the gospel before he gives you the command. He's saying, you're loved. You are loved. So when he says beloved, you are loved. Let us therefore love one another. 
And it presupposes you're not going to do this on your own until you recognize how wildly loved you yeah. are. And you see that and you appreciate it and you're freed by it and you want to give it to others. So that's the idea. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And that word also in the Greek is a word that doesn't just mean head knowledge. It's experiential. Yeah. And that's really, really critical to hear. It's not just, you know, oh, I know God. Yeah, I studied and I, you know, I've made a profession of faith and I believe that he exists. No, 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 no. He's saying, you've got to love people. And if you love people, you've been born of God and you've experienced God. That's That makes it evident. If you're loving people with an agape, it's a Greek word there, with an agapao kind of love, man, then that means you've experienced God because you're now filled with his spirit, his power, his love that's going out to others. But that's because you've experienced it first and you've been loved first. Yeah, and I think this begs the question of, you know, maybe not like to get down in on what love is because like, you know, a lot of times I can just be like, we feel like it's romantic and like in our world, mm -hmm. we see divorce, we see love stop, you mm -hmm. know, like in our, in our, <laughs> yeah. like in, yeah. in our world, we're like, okay, we loved each other, but now we don't anymore. So, mm -hmm. but whereas the Bible comes to us, you know, with the classic passage read at weddings and I don't have it in front of me, but you know, love is patient, you know, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not mm -hmm. boast, it's not self, like that's a serious call mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. because it's pretty all inclusive. Yeah. Right. There's no caveats in all of this. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible definition of love that should make everybody go, all right, I got some work to do. Yeah. You know, like it's it's intense. And that word agape, there's all different, like you mentioned. There's Even in the Greek, you know, today you could say I love pizza or I love whatever. I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my God. You know, there's all kinds of different. In, in the ancient world, you had four different types of love. There was... Uh, Eros, which is like an erotic form of love. There was uh, Philos, which is like a brotherly Brother kind of love. Philadelphia. There you go. Philadelphia, that's brotherly love. Adelphos is Greek for brother. There you go. Boom. Another one is Storge, and that's kind of like a, I think it's a countryman kind of love, like really I'm with you in the trenches, you know, yeah. faithful, you know, brother arm in arm kind of stuff. And then the last one is agape, and it's different because all of those other ones are based on relational connections, they're based on emotion, they're based on pleasure. Agape comes, and it's a love that is a resolute commitment of the will. Mm. It's, it is a decision kind of love. Like, I'm going to love you come hell or high water. It's a marital kind of love where you say, I'm going to love you for richer or for poorer, for in sickness and in health, no matter what. You're safe with me. I'm never leaving you. I am faithful to you. I'm all in committed yeah. to you. And, and there's a selfless kind of a, a connotation to that word as well. Like, I will give of myself to carry out this promise. And so that's the kind of love that specifically John's talking about here. You've been loved like that. Yeah. So now you love others with a decision, even when it's hard, even when you don't want to, even when you don't like them, even when it comes at a cost. Why? Because you've been born of God and you've experienced that very thing in him and from him. And you're biting in Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's what the end all be all is. That that you know, this is not an oppressive kind of command to us. Mm -hmm. No, it's the we get to do this because we have been loved. Mm -hmm. You know, none of these commands are burdensome. I think John mm -hmm. says it at some point in this letter. Um, but that's what he's getting <laughs> at. You know, he's always just so reminding. We're gonna hit this next verse, and it's gonna be like, yeah, this is why. And when he says, right, like you just talked about a really important point to set up this next point, because then it's like, you know, it begs the question, well, don't people who don't know God, don't they love? And the answer is yes, but the Christian has a compulsion that mm -hmm. won't settle for anything other than love. There's, there's, there's love that exists outside of Christ that can sustain a while, that peters out, but the Christian is compelled by the Spirit within, by a love of Jesus, by knowing what He requests of them, that love cannot be extinguished. It will always triumph. In the end, even though it might be hard to get there, yeah. you're going to press on toward love. And then, so it's not saying, well, non-Christians don't love. That's not what this is saying. It's saying the Christian has an influence, a power inside of them that will not stop until love wins, right? You're, you're going to press into that. So verse 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God. And again, remember that word know is experience. Like anyone who doesn't love has not experienced God. 
Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, you experience God. You experience that kind of love. You want that to be the driving force of all of your life and all of your relationships because it's so amazingly beautiful. And he says, anyone who does not love does not know or experience God because God is love. And that's pretty amazing. And so that, like, that definition isn't all-encompassing of God. You know, God is also called jealous. God is jealous, it says in the Bible. God is a consuming fire. I mean, you, you have to put together the totality picture of God. But it's because God is love that God is also jealous, Yeah. right? He won't share your affections with anyone else because he loves you too much to do so. And he knows every other affection you have, if it's an ultimate affection, is going to enslave you and make your life miserable. He loves you too much to share you. Therefore, he's jealous. God is a consuming fire. Why? Because his love for humanity is so intense that he refuses to let us persist in a world that's fallen and broken and painful and filled with tears and hatred and death and disease. Eventually, he's going to break forth a a consuming fire that either consumes everything that's wicked about the world or refines it through purification. Like, Everything that he is, even his wrath, is driven by love. It's a pretty wild idea. So in verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so in this, it gets back to this thing that John is hitting on again and again and again, which is, you're not a Christian because you're good enough or you chose him. No, he chose you. He loved you. God sent his son into the world so that you could have life. He has accomplished your salvation. He's the one who initiated the relationship. He's the one who's done everything. And now he just asked you by love to submit and surrender and to love him in return. Yeah, and it's... I mean, John's always reminding us that it's not merit-based, which mm-hmm. I think is, you know, he's just putting Jesus in front of us. And he's saying, okay, just keep looking at Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. behold Jesus. See Jesus' love for you. See that he chose you, made you a child, and That's now it. out of that act. Mm-hmm. And so what we, what, what our hearts and minds in a, in a fallen nature want to do is to hear this and say, man, i got to love better. <laughs> i gotta, I got to come up with a checklist or come up with people yeah. that I'm failing, and i gotta, I got to try harder. And it's like, okay, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you're going to be inadequate for the task unless you first remember how loved you are, unless you remember first whose you are, unless you remember that God gave everything for you, even though you didn't deserve it, gladly, and he sings over you, and his love for you is extravagant. Okay, well, now marinate in that, and now go love from that position of power. Because God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And here's a theological term that people might not know what that means, but it basically means like he's the one who made God happy with you. He, he satisfied the wrath. He yeah. set it aside. He brought God's favor upon you. I, the way I was thinking about this, I was actually explaining this word to my son this morning in the car, and I gave him a really terrible analogy. Oh, no. But I said, you know, like this morning, my stomach, because I, I hadn't eaten all night, my stomach was like, you felt the acids burning, mm. and I had a Nutrigrain bar, and yeah. I ate it, and as soon as it went down, I could feel all my stomach acids going, oh, food, thank you, and then they raced to it, and they started eating, and all of a sudden, the hunger pains were gone. Yeah. Well, that that Nutrigrain bar mm. was the propitiation to satisfy my hunger. <laughs> you know, all the wrath of the stomach acids were quelled because the Nutrigrain bar went in. Really terrible illustration. Yeah. But Jesus satisfied God's wrath. All of the the desire, you know, the hunger pains of that wrath, or however you want to put it, was satisfied by Jesus, and now none of that wrath remains for me. None of it. All justice has been paid for, and now God looks at me with favor. Yeah, it's amazing also, like, the finality that John gives us and the assurance of it all. Mm-hmm. Like, every time he's talked about the sacrifice of Jesus, it's like, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's over. All the wrath is done. All the guilt has been taken from you. There's no more shame. You know, when you're going to see Jesus at, <laughs> at the last coming, like there's going to mm-hmm. be no shame, only confidence because Jesus' sacrifice mm-hmm. did it all. It's, and that's, that's what John does. Every time he lays down one of these boulders on your, like, if you do this, you're not a believer. Yeah. It's almost 
like it's every time it's followed up by now look at how Christ loves you. Look at what is available to you in him. Look at what he's accomplished for you. So he never throws a a, a bomb on your head without saying, okay, well yeah. here, look at this. Like this is the answer. It's Jesus. Now don't, don't feel beat up about it. Look at him, yeah. behold him, love him, realize what you have in him. Verse 11, it says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And hear that. If God abides in us, his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? It means it's not perfect now. Yeah. But as he abides in you, you will not be able to help but become a more loving person. Given, you know, long enough, you you start just saturating yourself with the love of God and all of the promises and your identity is conformed to the child of God that you are. Mm. And inevitably, his love will be perfected with time and and shortcomings and failures. I still don't love people well yeah. all the time, you know, often actually. But his love is being perfected in us. The longer, the more we see our need of mercy, and he gives it freely. And the more we see our need of grace, and he gives it freely. And the more we see our need of his love, and he gives it freely, and infinitely so, the more that is perfected in us to where we're like, I want to be like him. That's, it, it changes our nature. Yeah, I think it's fun that we're hearing old man John say all this yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Because you can just feel that he that he has been abiding with God mm-hmm. for, you know, what is he, an octogenarian? Mm-hmm. I read that in a commentary. That's the, that's the nice way to say he's old. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. He's an octogenarian, like he's in his eighties. <laughs> uh, and you can just feel that heart, like what we're hearing from a man who has been mm-hmm. doing exactly what he's saying, what the Holy Spirit is speaking through him, mm-hmm. he's been doing. You can just feel it. You, like you can feel the emotion he has for these people, the love he has for these people. He truly believes mm-hmm. that God loves them so deeply that the compulsion to do all of this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is the same guy writing this that Jesus referred to as a son of thunder, <laughs> right? Like he was so impulsive. He wanted to call down wrath on people. Yeah. He was... Like he was a son of thunder. He that's that's wild. He's the one who one of the ones who came to Jesus and was like, I want to be at your right hand side. I want to be considered better than everyone else. Like, so you see like where he started when you read about him in the gospels to where he is now as this older seasoned man who has had a lifetime to wrestle with the implications of the gospel. And now it's like you you see a radically new man. He's not the guy who's saying, "Hey, I demand to be at your right and your left," you know, or I, you know, I'm calling down wrath on everybody. Like, it's a it's a totally transformed yeah. man. Why? Because he'd spent decades just absorbing the truths of God's word and His promises and His love, and he's transformed. You see it in his writing. How long was he sent to that Patmos alone? I don't know. So John John is the only one of the 12 apostles who doesn't end up dead by martyrdom, and Judas killed himself. Um, so John instead was exiled to Patmos. He yeah. had bo- boiling oil poured yeah. on him. Um, he suffered pretty viciously, was exiled because of his faith, and it's on the island of Patmos uh, that he writes some of his letters here. And so we don't know a ton of details about that. Uh, but church tradition says that he was on there um, exiled for quite a while. Yeah, so imagine just John with his thoughts, you know, like mm-hmm. like he truly, and I mean, and just not to go crazy because it's like solitary confinement. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, his choice was to abide in God in those mm-hmm. days. Yeah, and listen, this is a guy who's been thoroughly wronged, who's poured himself out yeah. for the love of the world. He's been mistreated, exiled, banished, and what's he writing about? Go love the world. Yeah. Go love the world. Don't don't be con- don't take in the world's way of doing things. Don't mm. don't react with bitterness and hostility and rage and revenge. No, you're you're different than the world. Like that's his heart. Even after all he's faced, I, he's a he's a good dude. I like John. He's a good man. Real casual way to say <laughs> it. So verse thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. There it is. Like. When Jesus leaves, and you you find this in the Gospel of John in chapter 14 or 15, somewhere in there, where he says, you know, I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you my spirit, the helper. 
and he's going to remind you of what I've taught, and he's going to be present with you, and he's going to help you to, to bear fruit in life, and he's going to do all these things. And John, you got to imagine when he hears Jesus saying that before the death and resurrection is yeah. going, wait, wait, you're, you're leaving us with the, the spirit? What? Like, no. Yeah, we like, want you. Correct. Like, you stay. Correct. Like, we'll take you. <laughs> now, on the other side of this, after Pentecost and speaking in tongues and seeing miracles and all of these things that he has experienced in his life and the abiding power of the Holy Spirit inside of him, he's like, dude, like, this is how you know that you abide in him and he in you. He's given the spirit. Like if you die to self and you allow the spirit and the truths of the mm. scripture to come and animate your life, that is when you know that you're his. Yeah. Like if you if the the spirit is powerful to bring you peace, to bring you joy, to bring you love in hard circumstances, to to compel you to do the right thing when it would be way more fun to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Like that's how you know. Is the spirit in you? Are you alive? If you have you as your old nature of the world, is it dying? Yeah. And the power of the spirit's growing in you. Do you see that in you? That's how you know you're one of us. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. So here it is. If you believe that and you can confess that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in you. If you really, really believe that, if you really believe the claims of the gospel, then the power of the Spirit comes to dwell in you. That is it, by faith alone. That's That doesn't say, hey, finish your checklist, <laughs> do all these things. No, it's saying, if you believe that Christ is the Son of God and accomplished what he claims to have accomplished, the Spirit will come to dwell in you, if you genuinely believe that. So, verse 16... So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. There it is again. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You would be unable to abide in love without the power of the Spirit and the gospel in you. But the more that you abide in love, it's a, it's a reflection that you're abiding in God. You understand yeah. the gospel. You understand agape, that, that resolute commitment to love at great personal sacrifice. Why would the world do that? It doesn't make sense to love at great personal sacrifice for long. When it finally costs you something that's your ultimate precious, because if Christ is not your ultimate precious, then something else is your ultimate precious, right? Yeah. Money, career, reputation, whatever. And when that gets threatened you'll forfeit and you'll refuse to love if that gets threatened. You'll defend it at all cost, and you'll, you'll wipe away anyone else who threatens it. But if your greatest love is Christ, what can take that away from you? Nothing. Nothing. And what does he compel you to do? If, if I'm your ultimate love, then go love others, because when you love them, you're loving me. It's totally selfless, yeah. and it's the only thing that takes away your ultimate idols that can get in the way of you loving other people, because mm -hmm. when you love him most, nothing threatens your identity. Yeah, You're absolutely secure. Nothing can knock you off course. Your flesh can, but then if you remember, hey, my ultimate allegiance is Jesus, and he tells me to love my enemies, oh, all right, well, I got to go back there, you know? But if you're threatening my career and my career is my ultimate idol, I can't let that go. I'll destroy you before I let you destroy my identity. I mean, John just keeps on saying the same thing over yeah, and over. Yeah, he does. So we have to just keep on talking about the same thing over and over. Not saying that's bad, but I feel like... Yeah, you get the sense. I mean, he really does. He just keeps repeating himself here. Um, but I guess he's doing that because he really wants you to get the point. So it's like, let me say this a few different ways in case you missed it the first time. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. I love that line. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, and that is so powerfully true. Yeah. When you have, I, I use this verse in, in marriage counseling. I just read this verse in a, at a wedding I just performed on Saturday. And the reality is, if you have somebody who has made a resolute commitment of the will, agape form of love, it's not mm -hmm. eros, it's not storge, it's not yeah. philos, somebody who's made a resolute commitment of the will that says, I will not leave you come hell or high water, you are safe with me, I will never leave you or abandon you. 
man, there's safety in that. I don't have to come home thinking I failed Laura. Is she going to throw me out? Is she going to throw me out? Because what is it saying? Perfect love casts out fear. I feel safe with her because I believe she authentically loves me. She's made a resolved commitment that she's never going to abandon me. We, we belong to one another. And when you experience that kind of love, man, it's safe. But you look at what's causing all of the, the emotional mess and turmoil that is what our generation and culture is today. What is it? Everybody's constantly trying to win approval. They're terrified that they're going to be found out because that's not perfect love. Because if you really felt loved, you'd feel safe to be yourself. But we Mm. don't believe that. We live in this culture where it's like, you know, be yourself, but nobody feels comfortable being themselves because we don't understand what real love is. Real love casts that fear out. Agree? Disagree. You do? No, I'm just kidding. You were just going Does it make there. sense? Yeah, you were, no, you were just rolling there. I was like, yeah, keep it up. And he goes on, he says, for fear has to do with punishment, right? That, it's back to my thing with Laura. If I come home and I'm like, oh no, she's going to be mad at me and she's going to punish me. I, you know, no, good grief. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Like it, love is a sanctuary. You know, you're safe. You know that all your flaws and all your scars and all your mess can be on display. And in real perfected love, you're still safe. That's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be a place where wounded people can come and can be seen in their hurts, can be seen in their struggles, and they don't have to question, am I safe here? Why? Because perfect love, which just flows from the gospel, casts out fear. So you can come be broken here because we love as Christ loves, and perfect love cast out fear. It's a freedom in the gospel. Verse 19. This is a this is a refrigerator magnet. Wonderful verse. We love because he first loved us. He's just he said this in a million different ways. <laughs> but it's like you're not you're not initiating this. Yeah. You're loving because he first loved you. He is the one who initiates this. He is the one that powers it. If you'll just allow his love to overwhelm you, it will change you to love others. And so verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Gulp. You talked about this for your upcoming sermon. Run through the list of how you get to hatred. Yeah, I think, okay, because this is the second time that he talks about, you know, earlier at the end of chapter three, we come to that idea that you can't love God. Like you, like if God is righteousness, mm-hmm. then you, then he commands us to love our brothers, mm-hmm. right? We cannot hate our brothers because love and hate are the exact opposites. So I was thinking like, I wouldn't like when you ask me, do you hate someone? Like I, I like kind of cringe at that because I don't want to like <laughs> label my feelings as hate sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I think, Oh, that's a really serious word. And what I'm feeling, I probably wouldn't call it that. But if I'm honest with myself, there's feelings that could get to hate inside of me. Mm-hmm. So as I think about, okay, what's the, how do we get to hate in our lives? Yeah, the progression doesn't start with hate, but it ends with hate, right? Like, like the first step is unmet expectations in, in any way, righteous ones, <laughs> unrighteous ones. Mm-hmm. Right? I have an expectation of Morgan because she's my spouse, right? And then those are good expectations. And when those aren't met, that there can become something, mm-hmm. right? So unmet expectations, whatever they are, whether I deserve those in truly or not, um, that matters how I feel about that. And then if my expectations are unmet, it leads me to be angry. Right, I'm going to let anger stew long enough, then eventually that's going to turn to bitterness, that there's going to be really something in my heart that's, that's like resentful. And mm-hmm. then if that stews long enough, then I'm going to end up with hate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to end up with like, there's no love in my heart for whatever it is, whoever it is in that life. Yeah. And I, and I think where John is going with this is what he, what he's not saying is, you know, if this is, if this has ever happened, if you've ever been in this trajectory toward hatred, well, then you're not a believer. What this is saying is, you, as a believer, you can't settle there. Yeah, there, There's going to be a war within you that the Spirit says, like you could be angry at somebody. You could have this, this terrible injustice done against you, mm-hmm. and everything in your flesh says, I deserve to hate them because they wronged me. And you might be right about the fact that they wronged you, but the Spirit of God will never allow you to say, I'm content to sit 
and hate this person for the mm -hmm. rest of my life. You will stir until you forgive that person and you do everything within your power to let go of that hatred and truly to forgive and to reconcile. Hatred can not dwell permanently, comfortably in the heart of a Christian. It is impossible if the Spirit's in you. It's intended to be challenging for us. So if you feel that way towards somebody, then you need to yield and submit to what the Word of God says over what your own heart that's mm. sinful and fallen and self-absorbed has to say. And it's a surrender to Jesus. And by the way, when you do that, one of the things that's really helpful in, in exercises of forgiveness is not to say, this person has done a terrible thing to me. And I'm not talking about being a doormat or yeah. if somebody's abused you, opening yourself up to abuse again. That's not loving to that person anyway. Mm -hmm. But it is saying... I am going to forgive that person even though they're not worthy of it. Because yeah. by, you don't forgive because the person suddenly becomes worthy of forgiveness. You forgive as an act of worship to God first, always. Because it's Jesus who looks at you and says, you've done far worse to me, and I've loved you, and now I'm empowering you to do likewise to your brother and sister. And so... If you can't get to a place in your heart where you look at that person and think, I can reconcile and I can love that person and I can mm. forgive that person, set them aside for a moment and now make it an exercise where you have an opportunity to go and offer a sacrifice to Jesus because this is really hard and it's really painful. And yet when you express your love to the person who's wounded you or alienated you, you're expressing your love to Jesus. So make that the exercise because you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then the final verse in this chapter, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And the word there that I want you to hear, must, hmm. right? This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Humanity is really hard to love sometimes. <laughs> yeah. you know, It's really hard to pray for them and to want good things for them. And people who harm you up close, it's really hard to be, like I, I say all the time, ministry would be really easy if there were no people involved, <laughs> right? People are messy. They're hard to love. Yeah. They're, they're draining at times. And yet this is the commandment. That's why it's a commandment, because it's hard, right? He wouldn't, he wouldn't command you to do something if you just naturally did it. And that requires a power within you to be able to carry that out. And I can tell you, like, one of my great hopes that I would love to see in my lifetime is if there was a great revival again, like the Great Awakening, where the Spirit came and took up residence in hearts and people began to love well, and you were able to see just a greater taste of heaven on this side of the grave, to be able to see heaven invade, to be able to see people love and to have joy and peace, because we live in a world that is crumbling, it's divisive, there's no peace, there's very little love. And man, I'm telling you, if we could see the Spirit of God pierce this pierce into this world and set hearts ablaze, and we were able to see people love like John describes love, it would be a pretty amazing place. One, I'd, I really want to see that place. Amen. Do we have to apologize to these people? For what? I mean, it is 2.13 on Friday. Oh, for being late? Yeah. I mean, it's been an eventful week. This podcast isn't getting to their ears anytime <laughs> soon. So, yeah. I don't so, we apologize. We're sorry. That might happen tomorrow morning. I think I'll probably edit it tonight. I know, but they're probably like, these guys, slacking. They're slacking. It's my, all Will's fault. My drive to work on Friday was really boring because our voices weren't in it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. Bad guest. Bad guest. Bad guest. From, uh, from Massachusetts. Out of water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Anyway, thank you for joining us. I'll just stop there because I can't talk anymore. Uh, we hope that this was encouraging to you, that it makes Jesus all the more beautiful to you. And if, again, anything in this challenges you or makes you uncomfortable, there's one solution. Go to Jesus.
rest in his love, recognize that you're a child of the king, and receive his spirit. And that will empower you to do everything that he's asking of you. But you have to behold him first. God bless. Have a good week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.